My name is Jorge Viñuales. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Cambridge, where this afternoon we're recording this third lecture on the issue of state responsibility uh, for internationally wrongful act. Uh, the focus of this third lecture is going to be in the two remaining components of the uh, secondary rules of state responsibility. So in the previous lecture we saw the conditions for state responsibility, and now we're going to look at the consequences and the processes through which uh, state responsibility is implemented. These two uh, components are addressed in separate sections in the ILC articles of 2001. That has not always been the case in the previous version, in 1996. The two components were somewhat, somewhat merged in part two, although the two of them had been envisioned uh, since the very beginning of the, of the codification process of this topic. Um, the, starting point, uh, the starting point, as usual, as in the previous lecture, uh, is going to be the pivotal notion of a breach. So, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, uh, in order for responsibility to be triggered, you need a primary norm, and that primary norm has to be breached. And in that case, uh, you would need a process to ascertain whether that primary norm has been breached, and if it is the case, then there would be consequences uh, uh, of that breach. And the general law, general international law of state responsibility uh, chart both components, both the processes and the consequences. Regarding the processes, and I will say much more in a moment, regarding the processes, there are essentially two types of processes. Processes that are interstate, horizontal, uh, without the intervention of a third party or a third body. Uh, and the typical process would be a notice of claim and followed by negotiation, but it can go as far as uh, the adoption of countermeasures. Uh, whereas a second process is is really to bring the claim before a body, whether that body is a political body, such as the General Assembly of the United Nations, or uh, a judicial or quasi-judicial body, such as International Court of Justice or uh, an arbitration tribunal. And in that case, the, uh, the state bringing or invoking the, the, the state responsibility of the other state would uh, bring a notice and, 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 and pursue the, uh, the procedure uh, according to the rules of that, that body. Uh, only through these processes one can get to the, uh, not only ascertainment of the breach, but the determination of the consequences, the legal consequences of that breach. And those uh, legal consequences are uh, determined in general international law, uh, both for the uh, breaching state, the responsible state, and uh, exceptionally, and that is something that I was mentioning earlier in, in the previous two lectures, uh, essentially that there are some cases where certain breaches of certain types of norms uh, trigger consequences not only for the responsible state, but also for uh, third states. So this is a broad map uh, of, this, uh, of this third lecture. Uh, although the ascertainment comes in a way before the consequences, the ILC articles deal with the consequences before 
and only then with the processes. So I will respect that order and focus first on the consequences, the legal consequences of breach, and only then move to the processes. Now, regarding the legal consequences of breach, uh, the ILC articles uh, look at that in part number two. Uh, part number two, uh, again, is, is a fairly complex system of provisions, but in essence, in essence, uh, it derives consequences uh, from a breach of a primary norm uh, for two uh, categories of states. The first category of states is the responsible state. And most of the provisions look at the, respons uh, the responsible state. So, what are these provisions saying? Well, essentially, you can uh, synthesize the contents of the LC articles on this point by uh, referring to one reminder and uh, two consequences. The reminder, which is, uh, appears in Article 29 of the ILC Articles, may appear very, very simple, but is very important. Essentially, it states that the fact that there has been a breach does not mean that the obligation, the primary norm that has been breached, is extinguished. And it does not mean that it, this obligation no longer binds and has to be respected by the breaching state. So it preserves the validity and the binding character of, uh, of the primary norm. It, it does not preserve it. It reminds, it reminds uh, the, the fact that this primary norm is not being extinguished. This is important because, not only because it, it means that you cannot get rid of an obligation simply by breaching it, but more generally because, to some extent, it introduces implicitly a distinction between the operation of these secondary rules and the operation of another set of provisions uh, in the law of treaties, whether in customary law of treaties or the law of treaties codified by the 1969 Vienna Convention, according to which uh, obligations in treaties, specifically treaties themselves, can be suspended or terminated. Uh, the distinction between these two things, uh, secondary rules of state responsibility and uh, these causes of suspension or extinction, was addressed by the International Court of Justice in some detail in the uh, famous 1997 judgment in the Gatchikobo Najimados uh, case, uh, where the court actually made that, that, that distinction between the, the operation of the state responsibility rules and the operation of the causes on suspension or termination. In simple terms, if a cause of suspension or termination of a treaty norm is, uh, is available, if the conditions are met, then the obligation is suspended or terminated, which means that it, it, it does not have the ongoing existence and binding character that would be uh, preserved in the case of state responsibility. But that is, that is the, uh, the simple reminder that the, that the LC articles uh, uh, provide with respect to the uh, primary norm. The primary norm is maintained and it continues to be binding and has to be met by the responsible state. The two consequences, the two important consequences that are uh, ascribed to the violation, the breach of a primary norm, 
by the responsible state are uh, contemplated in Article 30 and thereafter in a number of provisions uh, starting with Article 31. Uh, so the first consequence, which is very important for the responsible state, is the obligation of cessation and non-repetition. Of course, that uh, implies that the breach is ongoing, but this, this obligation is, is, is in a way the uh, attempt at, 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 recalling, at recalling that uh, what counts is in, in a way specific performance. What counts is in a way the maintenance of the primary norm of obligation and its respects much more than buying one's way out of that obligation by paying reparation. So the first obligation, as I was saying, is then uh, really cessation and non-repetition, Article 30. Thereafter, a range of other uh, legal consequences uh, uh, are described in the LC articles, uh, and essentially they concern uh, what is called the form, the form of reparation. So there are three main forms of reparation. Reparation by restitution, which is Article 35, which is very simple to, uh, to describe in a way, would be undoing the wrong uh, by, by correcting what happened in reality if a person has been imprisoned to, be, uh, to release that person or, uh, uh, I mean, there are many, many examples, but that would be a, a simple one. Uh, the second form of, uh, of reparation is compensation, monetary compensation. The ILC articles deal with this form in some more detail because it is very important in practice. And uh, perhaps I should say something more about it. But before, let me mention the third form of, of reparation, which is satisfaction, Article 37. And satisfaction is a form of reparation particularly suitable for uh, claims that seek declaratory relief. So when states, what they seek is a, a stance taken by the ICJ or by a court, it is very important that that stance is, is clearly taken and that may be sufficient for, uh, for the court to, uh, to repair the, uh, the breach. Uh, an example, a possible example among many others, is the, uh, the Palm Mills case between Argentina and Uruguay, uh, in which the, uh, the fact that the court found that the procedural obligation had been breached by Uruguay um, was sufficient reparation uh, in the circumstances. Let me now return to uh, the issue of compensation because it is very important in practice. Compensation, first point, Compensation has not to be conflated with reparation. It is a form of reparation, but not the only form. Now, within compensation, which essentially consists uh, in uh, wiping out, wiping out the consequences of the uh, internationally wrongful act, and the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, had uh, developed in its case law, particularly its predecessor, the Permanent Court of International Justice in the famous Horsfoot uh, uh, factory case uh, clarified the scope of that obligation and really uh, called it uh, 
uh, an obligation of wiping out the consequences of the unlawful uh, act. Uh, what does it mean exactly to wipe out the consequences? Well, that has been left open to some extent in the ILC articles. Uh, it is true that the ILC articles uh, bring some clarity in two respects. One respect, very important in practice, is the issue of interest that was introduced in the, uh, in the 2001 ILC uh, project, uh, and, and, and which is very important in practice. And another, another clarification is the issue of contributory fault. Uh, the fact that uh, there may be fault from the uh, injured state that may require the compensation to be adjusted. But compensation is particularly interesting, I guess, in, 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 the, in the context of the present course, because it allows for a comparison between uh, the general international law state responsibility and more specific special systems of secondary rules that are expressly reserved by Article 55 of the LC Articles and that tend to have a different approach to some of the issues such as compensation. And I will give you three examples, but really in passing. The first example is, of course, the, uh, uh, the system created by the World Trade Organization Agreements and the system of dispute settlement. In that system, Quite uh, strikingly, what, what, what is not present clearly is compensation. So the system is entirely built on the idea that what is important is to bring the non-compliant states to compliance, uh, typically through what could be called uh, restitution. Uh, I guess it's a fair way to put it, but the system would call it differently. But it's, it's clearly a distinctive uh, feature of that system when compared to the, uh, the frequency of compensation as a way of reparation in the general law, is a very distinctive feature to, 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 to focus on restitution and to uh, pay little attention, limited attention, although in practice there have been some adjustments, but to pay limited attention to the issue of uh, compensation. Another, another uh, special adjustment, uh, which is not necessarily a special system, and I'm talking about rules that are special with respect to other rules, not entire systems that are special with respect to other, uh, other systems. It's really at the level of rules that this has to be assessed. Is the issue of the award of compound interest in the context of investment arbitration. So if one reads carefully uh, uh, the ILC articles, uh, Article uh, 38 on interest, but also the uh, commentary to the 2001 articles, one will find that uh, the Commission very clearly took the position that there is no entitlement in international law, in general international law, uh, to the award of compound interest. Uh, this said, in the practice of investment tribunals, compound interest, the award of compound interest, is very frequent. And it makes for a very large part of the overall monetary compensation that is awarded in, in many cases. So this is what we're seeing here is, is a, a sort of lex specialis that is, that is moving away from the general international law uh, of state responsibility. Uh, yet another example that I will simply mention it in passing 
is in the rules of the United Nations Compensation Committee that was set up to manage the claims uh, in the aftermath of the Gulf War in the 1990s. Uh, the, there was a decision, decision number 16, of the Governing Council, uh, which specifically uh, identifies what are the rules applicable on interest. So you see that there are indeed uh, special systems, uh, I would call special rules, because that would be more accurate from a legal perspective, special rules of uh, compensation that uh, to some extent derogate from uh, the general rules of, of state responsibility. Uh, these are the uh, these are the basic uh, consequences that emerge for the responsible state. So the reminder that the primary rule remains and then the consequences of cessation and non-repetition and of reparation in its three forms. So restitution, compensation and satisfaction. There are also consequences, as I was saying, uh, for other states, other than the responsible state. And this is one of the remains of the modulation of secondary rules that responded to the stratification of primary rules. So in previous lectures I mentioned that uh, primary rules have been stratified some primary rules have become more important hierarchically by virtue of their content. And this is a recognition of peremptory norms of international law, such as, for instance, the prohibition on the use of force, uh, the prohibition of genocide, the prohibition of uh, slavery, the prohibition of racial discrimination, uh, the uh, right to self-determination, and some others that are being uh, identified through a very careful process that is ongoing at the International Law Commission right now. But the uh, ILC articles uh, reflected to some extent the stratification in primary norms in the secondary rules of the ILC articles by saying that a serious breach of a peremptory norm triggers consequences for other states as well. Now, the LC articles do not define what uh, a peremptory norm is, but it does give some guidance on what is a serious breach. And the definition is uh, a breach that is gross and systematic. That appears in Article 40, uh, Paragraph 2. So when a breach of a peremptory norm is a serious breach, then a range of other consequences arise for states other than the responsible states, so for all states uh, in the international community, and those consequences are of three, three main sorts. The first is the uh, obligation of cooperation to put an end, to bring an end to the unlawful situation. So all states have to cooperate to put an end to that unlawful situation. The second uh, obligation is an obligation of non-recognition of the unlawful situation or of the situation created through unlawful means. And the third is uh, the obligation not to render assistance or aid uh, the state that is uh, uh, responsible for that unlawful uh, act. The consequences have been taken up and discussed in some detail in some of the case law of the International Court of Justice, particularly in two, and I shall say, one, uh, three advisory opinions. One, avant la lettre, uh, essentially the Namibia advisory opinions in the early 1970s, 
already uh, uh, discussed this issue and, and shed some light on what the consequences for third states were, but closer to us, and particularly after the ALC articles, uh, the advisory opinions on the uh, construction of a wall and occupied Palestine territory of 2004, and the advisory opinion uh, on the situation of the Chagos Archipelago, uh, more recent of this, this year, in 2019. Uh, one finds in those, in, those, uh, in those three advisory opinions some guidance uh, as to the character, the scope, the implications of these obligations that emerge for other states, uh, not just the responsible state. So, so far, I have been discussing the issue of consequences, legal consequences. So the second component out of the three components of the rules of state responsibility. Uh, I will now move to something that is treated in the third part of the LC articles, but that, uh, that, as I was mentioning earlier in this lecture, chronologically, analytically, would come first, uh, because it is the processes through which uh, a breach is ascertained and the consequences of the breach are derived. Uh, regarding that, uh, that part, section uh, part 3 of the LC articles, and particularly regarding the processes uh, that are covered in that part, I should probably say a word before uh, about the, uh, the approach, the approach and the difficulties that are entailed in trying to define these processes. So the idea is that many states, many states may react to a perceived breach of a primary norm in different ways. Not all those reactions will amount to what is technically the invocation of responsibility. So you just can't confuse the invocation of responsibility with a range of diplomatic démarches, uh, with a range of diplomatic representations that would not be, that would fall short uh, of the actual invocation of responsibility. The invocation of responsibility of another state is something which is somewhat circumscribed by the definition of a claim. And that definition of a claim of the claiming state uh, may have to identify the primary norm that is breached, the conduct that is in breach, and the consequences that are preliminarily uh, um, derived by the state uh, from those acts. Now, I can, I can see that the uh, gray area between what is just a reaction and what is the actual invocation, invocation of state responsibility may not be easily identifiable. Uh, the IOC articles uh, very conscious of that, that problem, uh, devised a strategy uh, for addressing it, which is very clever, which is essentially a procedural strategy. In order for responsibility to be considered to be invoked, there must be a procedure which is followed, which essentially starts with a notification. And that notification is, 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 is mentioned in Article 43, but the different processes that can be followed after notification, they all require a notification uh, for uh, responsibility to be formally invoked. Now, once there is 
that notification, uh, there are in fact different uh, different paths that can be followed. But the best way uh, in which those paths can be uh, circumscribed for present purposes is essentially by saying, okay, who is is taking these steps? Who is uh, claiming that there has been uh, an issue of a breach and that there are consequences under state responsibility? And there are essentially, again, two groups of states that can do so. One group of states is the injured state or some other states that are assimilated or whose position is assimilated to the injured state. And the other group of states is states other than the injured state. Now that formula, that terminology, may be to some extent confusing, but essentially it means other states that may be in some way affected, but not directly affected, but in some way affected uh, by the nature particularly of the, of the primary norm that is being breached. So let me focus on these two groups of states uh, before I come to an end with uh, this discussion uh, is, is wrapped up in some way. So let me focus on the injured state. So in the injured state, the position of the injured state is addressed in uh, Article 42 of the ILC Articles. So this is a very important provision, very important provision that, uh, that contemplates three main uh, categories. So the first category is a very simple one, at least uh, at first sight, uh, and it's a category in which the obligation that is being breached is owed to the injured state individually. So this obligation is owed to a specific state, so if this obligation is breached, then that specific state is an injured state. Now, although it may appear very simple as, as, as a category, in practice there may be a, a range of uh, complications. And I will just flag one, uh, just to give you an idea of what type of complications may arise. In the context of investment, uh, in investment dispute settlement, uh, there sometimes has been uh, a confusion between the right holder, so the state to which the obligation is due, and the beneficiaries. Uh, there are some cases under the NAFTA, the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, particularly Chapter 11 of the NAFTA, in which uh, the uh, tribunals have taken different positions on who is the obligation owed to. Is an investment discipline owed to the investor or to the state of the investor? Is that investment discipline creating a right for the investor or is the investor only a beneficiary? So there are different positions on the issue uh, and it is not clear, it has not been clarified in the investment case law. But if one looks at general principles from the perspective of, the, uh, of general international law and to some extent human rights law, the solution would be very simple. Uh, investment agreements only create reciprocal concessions uh, that are owed by virtue of the nationality. So, in other words, under investment agreements, investors are beneficiaries, not right holders. So, in this case, the duty would be owed to the home state, 
to the state, to the contracting party. And that arises, for instance, from uh, the Barcelona Traction case that very clearly in paragraph 33 stated that commercial treaties are typically typical examples of synaragmatic treaties. And one can find references to the same logic in the case of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, for instance. So that's the first category of states. The injured state as a state to which the uh, obligation is owed individually. There are two other hypotheses in which some other states are assimilated to the injured state. One is, again, very simple. It is a case where the obligation is owed to a group of states, but one state is specially injured. A typical example would be uh, Article 192 or some other provisions, perhaps, of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is a duty to protect and preserve the marine environment. That duty, by definition, is not owed to any single state. It is, in fact, owed to the environment. The point is that the environment has to be protected per se, not because it is an interest of another state, but because the protection of the environment is an interest of the community. Now, it may be the case that certain actions that lead to the pollution of the marine environment may affect the state individually. And there are some, some illustrations. One illustration one can think of is the situation of New Zealand in the context of the uh, nuclear test case. So in that context, France was conducting atmospheric uh, nuclear tests. Uh, New Zealand uh, requested provisional measures from the International Court of Justice on, the, on two different bases. One basis uh, acting on behalf of all states and another basis acting on behalf of itself. And the uh, court all the provisional measures only on the second ground. That would be an example. There may be many different examples uh, that can be given of this hypothesis. The third hypothesis is a bit more, more complex. Uh, so some states may be assimilated to injured states when those states are parties to a treaty in which the obligations are interdependent. Interdependent, which means essentially that if one state within that system is not complying with the obligation, then probably the entire treaty no longer makes sense. Uh, the typical example would be disarmament. If you have a treaty about disarmament and one state is not disarming, uh, it would not make sense for other states to disarm. Um, I guess that that same logic can be extended to all treaties where there is a risk of defeating the purpose of the treaty if one state free rides. Essentially, one state, one state takes advantage of the fact that the other states are are trying to deal with a problem, and this state is not dealing with a problem. A, a typical example would be the Climate Change Convention and other treaties such as the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, but it's just one example. Uh, the, the level of uh, analysis that has to be uh, followed in this case is really at the level of the obligation, not necessarily of the treaty itself, but the obligation. Whether the obligation as such, whether the primary norm is uh, of an interdependent nature. Those states are all either considered as the injured state or assimilated to the injured state. The processes that these states can, uh, 
can follow in order to invoke the responsibility of the responsible state are the same processes that I was mentioning earlier, essentially notification followed, for instance, by negotiation, or notification followed by uh, countermeasures, countermeasures. So the LC articles deal in some detail with the law of countermeasures in general international law and, and sets conditions for the adoption of countermeasures. Uh, and of course, a third uh, approach would be to bring the, the, the claim before a third party, whether a judicial or an, a quasi-judicial third party, or potentially a political third party. Uh, the LC articles do not address that aspect. They only look at some elements of that, that third path, which are the facts who has a legal interest to bring the claim and to what extent the claim would be admissible. So the LC articles deal with that, but they don't, do not go as far as, as continuing the path, simply because uh, uh, judicial and quasi-judicial processes are dealt with in great detail at treaty level, and each has its own specificities that have to be respected. So this is a situation uh, of the uh, injured state, or states that are assimilated to the injured state. So there are three hypotheses uh, to consider a state as an injured state, and there are essentially three main paths, three main processes that can be followed by the injured state, uh, some of which are regulated in the uh, ILC articles, some of which are not. As before, when we were, when we were discussing the situation of consequences, uh, the ILC articles are modulated, so the secondary rules of processes are modulated to reflect to some extent the stratification of primary rules of obligation. And in this case, the modulation is not exactly equivalent with the modulation that one founds, finds in, in, in part two of the LC articles with respect to consequences. So, as you may recall, uh, in part two, the modulation only concerns serious breaches of peremptory norms. Whereas here, at the level of invocation, the modulation concerns not only peremptory norms, but also breaches that are not necessarily serious breaches of peremptory norms, but are breaches of other types of norms of a community nature, such as obligations erga omnes. One can think of the prevention principle in international environmental law, or even obligations erga omnes partes, that is, obligations that are owed uh, within a group that is defined by a treaty. So one can think, for instance, to the obligations to not to conduct commercial whaling within the uh, whaling convention. So in all those cases, in all those cases, Article 48 of the LC Articles, very important provision, uh, recognizes states other than the injured states uh, a right to bring a claim, to invoke uh, the responsibility of the responsible state. Now, this is very, very important uh, and is becoming increasingly important in practice. Uh, there have been at least two occasions in which the International Court of Justice has, although not expressly, 
but implicitly recognized that a state other than the injured state would have uh, a legal interest to bring a claim. And these two cases are, one, the uh, case between Belgium and Senegal uh, relating to the obligation to extradite, and the second is a whaling case bef between uh, uh, Japan and, uh, and, and Australia. So in those two cases, Article 48 was invoked by the parties, but the court actually, without stating clearly the basis of uh, the admissibility, simply recognized that the claim was admissible. So this is important, this is important because, as I mentioned in the first lecture, uh, uh, there is currently a case that has been brought before the ICJ uh, relating to the atrocities committed in Myanmar, uh, and that case has been brought by the Gambia. So it, the, the law of aggravated responsibility may become more and more important in the future. Now, what are the rights that are recognized to these states? Well, certainly they can notify their claim, and thereafter, thereafter, the consequences are not that clear in the ILC articles. So the IRC articles are not uh, clarifying whether uh, a state acting on the basis of Article 48 would be able to adopt countermeasures. So Article 40, uh, 54 of the ILC articles do not go as far, do not go as far. And the same thing, uh, the ILC articles do not take a position on whether that state could invoke the responsibility of the responsible state before an international tribunal. Now, the fact that the LC articles are indeed recognizing uh, the legal interest uh, of the non-injured state, or the state other than the injured state, and the fact that the LC articles, although not expressly, but the operation of that idea has been recognized in two cases by the International Court of Justice, I think provides uh, a sufficient ground for action and to conclude that uh, non-states other than the injured states uh, could invoke the international responsibility uh, of the responsible state uh, and potentially countermeasures and potentially go to court. Now, what they are claiming is limited in Article 48, so the uh, states other than the injured state could not, for instance, claim compensation for themselves. So the modulation remains uh, in Article 48 in a way that was made politically more acceptable than the initial modulation uh, in the uh, 1996 uh, project. But as you see, the, the system uh, in the second and third component, in component in the component relating to the consequences of state responsibility and processes to implement state responsibility, both systems are modulated to reflect the stratification of the primary norm uh, of conduct uh, in, 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 in certain ways that do not go too far, but that they recognize, in fact, that not every primary norm is exactly the same for state responsibility. So this is essentially what I wanted to, to share with you in this set of three lectures. I guess that the most important conclusion is that there is a system, that that system emerges from general international law, although 
the fact that all these provisions have been recognized as customary international law is sometimes debated, particularly for Article 48, there is increasing authority to conclude that Article 48 uh, would be uh, a reflection of customary international law. Uh, and this authority, I believe, in, in my view, will be strengthened in the future because over time the stratification of primary norms would become more and more uh, uh, will be clarified, I think, by uh, the work of codification bodies and it will become more and more understood by international tribunals and that in turn will have consequences at the level of secondary rules uh, of state responsibility. Thank you very much for your attention.